Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. I wanted to reach out and thank Leandri for writing a review in iTunes. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. He wrote, as an aspiring liveaboard and world cruiser, Franz and his podcast guests are a great resource for cruising practices, gears, and destinations in the med. Franz knows his personal preferences but he isn't dogmatic and provides support for his perspectives. Podcasts are released regularly, and audio is great. I listen to this right along 59 North and the Sailing Podcast. Hey, thanks, Leandri. I really appreciate the review. And you other listeners who enjoy this podcast, if you do me a big favor, you can support me by just writing a review in the iTunes directory, an honest review. All right, Leandri, you're right. I'm not going to make any... This week, I'm not going to make any editorial comments. We're going to move pretty much straight into the interview that I have with Jeff Cote of Pacific Yacht Systems. But before that, I'm going to do my quick advertisement so I don't interrupt the podcast in the middle with the advertisement. If you are studying for the ASA 101, 103, or 104, and you want to listen to an audio course to help you prepare for the written portion of the examination, I have an audio course that I've put together to help you prepare for the written portion of those examinations. If you're just starting out sailing, let me recommend that you get my audio course for the ASA 101. This will teach you a lot of the terminology and a lot of the safety procedures and requirements on a boat. Before you get on a boat, if you understand the terminology, you're way ahead in the game of sailing or in the sport of sailing or in the lifestyle of sailing, whatever you want to call it. So that's my advertisement. The audio courses are available at the website medsailor.com. They are also available in iTunes and CD Baby and on Amazon. So with that advertisement out of the way, let's get on to my interview. I'm talking to Jeff Coat. Jeff Coat was referred to me by one of our listeners, Timothy Grady. Tim said, hey, Franz, you might want to talk to Jeff. He's a good talker about boat electrical systems, passionate, loved the podcast, going back now for older shows. So I gave Jeff a call. He returned my call, and I'm going to talk to him about what his company does. First of all, Jeff, give us the address of your website, and then let's just go into details of what you do and how you got involved with it. All right, excellent. Uh, thanks for having me uh, on board. I appreciate the, the opportunity. Um, sharing my passion about boat electrical systems. Uh, you can find our website at www, so PY Systems, P as in Pacific, Y as in Yacht, and then systems with an S, plural, dot CA. And that's, uh, you'll see we, we're kind of a big advocate on uh, knowledge base. So there's a lot on our website. We don't really, we don't sell anything really on our website. There's nothing you can buy from us. We do product reviews, uh, a lot of um, articles on different electrical components, 
and we do a lot of write-ups on do-it-yourselves, inverter installs, charger installs, and whatnot. Um, so that's where you can find a, a plethora of information on electrical and electronic uh, devices for your boat. All right, I'm looking here, and I see you did a review on the Garmin product updates just recently then. Yeah, we do that. Yeah, absolutely. So we try to make a place where people can educate themselves on that specific subset of boating, which is just marine electrical and electronics. All right. Well, how did you get involved with what you do? So from the youngest age, one of my first memories in life was actually dreaming about having a sailboat. Um, it was just kind of weird. I'm from the Eastern seaboard. I'm, I don't come from a family that is involved into boating. Uh, did lots of swimming and was on the water a lot growing up, but always wanted to have a sailboat. And uh, out of uh, when I finished, actually while I was finishing engineering um, in right in the middle of the country, very far again from water, I was only applying to jobs that would bring me out to Vancouver, which has a all around all year around sailing pot potential. And um, so out of university came here and always dreamt of sailing in the fjords uh, or the inlets as we call them over here. And uh, knowing that it'd be very rainy, uh, but still kind of finding it very mystical. And uh, that brought me out here. And then I worked as an engineer for, you know, um, for a bunch of years. And in 2009, uh, I kind of went, well, I, 07, I officially started, but on my own. And my first employee was in 2010. And then uh, grew from there. And now we have about a dozen people in our in our outfit. And we basically service electrical needs and electronic needs of boaters um, here in the Pacific Northwest primarily. We've done work in the Caribbean, but most of the time in Mexico, but most of our owners are actually in the Pacific Northwest. So you're in Vancouver, is that right then? Yeah, that's right. Vancouver, British Columbia. Do you have very many customers at the Royal Vancouver Yacht Club? Yes, absolutely. That's a, that's a very active, one of many, but probably the largest uh, yacht club here. Um, there's a, a, a significant portion of our boaters are a member of that club. Um, and we do uh, quite a lot of work at, for those owners. I was up there on business oh, about three or four years ago, my buddy and I, who were both sailors and we were up there, we didn't know anybody, but we said, you know, we're up here for a few days. Let's go over to the Royal Vancouver Yacht Club. He's a member of the Balboa Yacht Club in Southern California, Newport beach. And so we went over there and we said, hey, uh, when do you guys have your beer can races, your round-the-buoy weekday races? And they said, oh, it's coming up tomorrow night. I said, well, we want to get on a boat. So we jumped on a boat and raced for an, for an evening out there. It was a lot of fun. It was a fun yacht club, and it was a fun crew to, to crew with. And I can't remember who it was we sailed with, but it was still a lot of fun. It was a great club. So when I talked to you earlier today, before we started uh, the recording, I, I mentioned to you that... Uh, so you do a lot of electrical work. And I said, well, do you do much of lightning work? And, and the reason I, I say that is because when I was sailing on the Chicago Mackinac race one time, and I've talked about this story in the past, but to, to paraphrase it very quickly, we were on the Chicago to Mac race. We were in the cruiser class. We were, we were out all night long. The next day we got a decent win, and we saw some of our chain, one of our chain plates starting to pull away from the deck and we said oh we gotta call it we're, we're you know we can't continue 
on we're just risking uh, losing the rig so we called it a day went over to the michigan side of the lake to a, a marina that that fixes boats to have it taken in to be repaired and when we pulled in there was another boat there that was from the same race the chicago mac race and we pulled up and said well what happened to you and he said well i got hit by lightning because that night when we were out there's lightning all around us and he was hit by lightning and i gather that the marina the marine or the uh the marine stores or the marine shops, um, a lightning strike is covered by insurance. So they were going to have their boat fully rewired. Now, you don't see a lot of lightning in British Columbia, you were saying, but you have had similar jobs in the past, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, fortunately, in British Columbia, lightning uh, thunder showers or lightning strikes are a rare occurrence here. We do see them more now than before but nothing like what would be seen in Florida or on the East Coast. Um, so it's not a common occurrence. We read about it um, in terms of what happens on the eastern seaboard, but it's not generally something that a lot of people here worry about. Um, now, the one thing that you were mentioning is there are instances where we this summer where a rather very 75-footer uh, with a carbon uh, fiber mass, very, very luxury yacht, hit one of the largest power lines, pretty much as big as they get in the city. Um, and um, it hit actually hit the power line and uh, did unbelievable amount of damage. And it was treated, you know, the, for example, the riggers came from Rhode Island. There was this specialist rigger that was flown in from Rhode Island to inspect the rig um, there's different people that were brought in from North America to look at different aspects of the boat. Um, we were involved in the rewiring of the electronics and electrical system on the boat. And it, you're right, it was, it becomes an insurance claim and it's, uh, it's a pretty, it, the damage is not, it's hard. It's, it's not one of those things where everything is damaged. It, it's really hit and miss. You, you, it's unpredictable where the current is actually going to go. And you have to do a full audit of everything on the boat and things might look okay in the front. And then in the back, you just, it's just blown to bits. And so certain things are obvious, certain things aren't, but it's very time consuming to go about fixing uh, the damage. What can, um, now I've, I've read articles on this in the past, but what is the standard rule for, for, oh, I guess mitigating the damages of a lightning strike. Are there certain things you can do if you're sailing in in areas where you're prone for, to lightning strikes that can protect your system? What what would be the standard procedure if you're in a thunderstorm? Because I we, we don't really see this kind of event that much, so I wouldn't consider myself an expert. I've I've been reading about it. I know the ABYC has standards. The American Boat Yacht Council has standards in terms of what the wiring should be between the mass and the keel, what the angle of the cable should be, right? Because you can't have straight corners. Otherwise, the, the current's just simply going to jump. Um, you know, that all the shrouds have to be uh, with this connected again to the keel via a certain type of cable, and you can't have certain bends. We've never, here in Vancouver, I've never deployed such a system. They, the boats are going to come with it that are manufactured in the U.S., and they're going to have them built in. I know the other thing, too, that people buy, uh, we're doing a large 144 boat right now, uh, like a, a motor yacht, 
and um, there's a diffuser that's going on top of the mast. Uh, it's a four-story boat, so it's pretty high up there. It's almost like a sailboat, and there's a diffuser that's at the top. So I know that there's pros and cons of diffusers, but again, I, I have very limited practical applicable knowledge on that. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I'm a really excellent resource on that front. So what type of work do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Just give us an overview of the types of jobs that you'll be working on. Yeah, so what's interesting about boating in British Columbia, which is uh, not necessarily what uh, owners on the rest of the west coast of North America get a chance to do, is the ability of leaving um, port and actually going to Anchorage to Anchorage to Anchorage to Anchorage, as, honestly, for as long as you want and almost in perpetuity. There is, n there is an endless selection of anchorages um, from here to Alaska and including Alaska. There's just endless amounts of anchorages that one can actually explore. And so what that gives is it actually gives boaters in this region, even though they're only maybe cruising for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, or three months, but they're not literally offshore, they have the, they're going to need the systems that are very similar to people that actually are cruising offshore and are going to Bora Bora or the Caribbean, because they basically need to be self-sufficient for power uh, while they're away for these extended periods of time. And that's one of the main attractions that brings boaters here from, you know, different parts of the country, including also the United States, and is to be able to stay at Anchorage. And so what we focus on is creating uh, power systems uh, that allow boaters to store enough energy on board for extended periods of time, and then also finding ways of how do you recreate energy to store in your batteries as you either move from an Anchorage to Anchorage or you know, like larger size alternators for sailors, for example, with external regulator, solar panels, wind generators, uh, DC gensets. Some owners have um, AC gensets, putting large size uh, chargers, uh, you know, converting flooded battery banks to maybe AGM, or now we're doing Firefly, which is kind of a more advanced type of AGM battery. So everything related to kind of energy systems and allowing or enabling an owner to be able to stay away from the dock for extended periods of time is really our specialty. So you talked about AGM batteries. Let's just give a quick um, education on the types of batteries that boaters typically use. Now, when I first launched my boat, and I launched my boat up in Bellingham, so I sailed a lot up in the area you're at. In fact, I always say when I'm done with the Mediterranean, that's where my boat's going back, is back up to the Pacific Northwest, because I love that area. But when I launched my boat, I put in four uh, Trojan T3s. These are the six-volt golf cart batteries and wired them in series. So I had two 12-volt two banks that were wired. Well, they were wired in series and wired in parallel to give myself, I don't remember how many amp hours. And those, yeah, around 320, as I recall, or something like that. But these batteries, they lasted literally 10 years. And I've never gotten batteries that lasted that long since then. So let's just talk about types of batteries that are, that are becoming more and more popular with what you're seeing up there. Yeah. So luckily 
foreboders, there's a lot of money and innovation or research and development that's happening on the battery front right now um, that we as boulders are benefiting even though we weren't the primary drivers for that research. So ultimately, you know, the old school method is really pretty much flooded batteries. Uh, they're lead acid. AGNs are lead acid as well. But the, the, the tried and true method is a flooded lead acid battery, and you can buy them in either starter, deep cycle applications, which would be, for example, a golf cart battery, or a, uh, some people will do a dual-purpose battery. So it's kind of like, a, for people that can relate, it be an all-season tire. It's neither good for summer or winter. And, and you would, as a boat owner, have a dedicated starting battery that can give a high rush, a high amount of current for a short period of time. Or a deep cycle is a low current draw for a very long period of time. And those are kind of different types of batteries for different applications. And so that's kind of the, the mode of operation that people are used to. And then lately, since for now a little bit while, there's been a new type of battery, still a new type of lead acid battery, and it's called a seal valve regulated battery. And they're, they're made of two different types, and you either can buy them in gel or AGM. And I, we commonly see people uh, mislabeling or misidentifying an AGM battery for a gel because they're both seal valve regulated, but they're actually different. Um, the electrolyte in a gel battery is actually in a gelatine state between the plates. And on an AGM, the, it's in a glass mat. So the big difference between the two is that an AGM battery is less finicky and less demanding than a gel battery in terms of its tolerance to um, charging, and uh, generally will just be undercharged slightly by uh, standard chargers and regulators and, and whatnot. So if you put them into a system and not you're not really considerate about their charging needs, they're still gonna give you reasonable life, not as good as if you actually set up everything for them, but they're not gonna die prematurely like the gel batteries used to do. And so you've got those different types of chemistries for the electrolyte on flooded. And then ultimately what you were referring to is the other choice you have is you can buy batteries in terms of different sizes. So you can buy a golf cart AGM, you can buy a gel, or you can buy it flooded. And it's still going to be the same dimension as the battery you have. You're just choosing how you want the electrolyte to be in that battery. And the, the big advantage with AGM is it doesn't need to be topped off. So it's a, it, there's no, it's a maintenance, a true maintenance free battery. Um, you're never going to, you're never going to put an electrolyte in the battery. So, so going down that path, what would be the disadvantage of an AGM versus a flooded battery then? Well, one is, um, cost is definitely one of the biggest disadvantages. Uh, generally, an AGM battery is maybe twice as much as a flooded battery, so that's that's a big disadvantage up front. Um, the other one would be a AGM battery can never be overcharged because you never have the ability. If you catch an overcharged situation on a flooded battery, you have the ability right away before the plates are exposed to top off and put distilled water in the battery and get the same the right amount of electrolyte. But you can't do that with an AGM. There's no ever rescuing an AGM battery from overcharge. You can rescue uh, a flooded battery. 
The other advantage too is that flooded batteries um, are able to be, uh, I guess it's called equalization. It's the fourth stage on a fourth on a smart charging system. You kind of rattle the plates with over, you know, old high voltages. You can't really. People are saying you can and you can't, but it's still kind of you're not following the manufacturer's instructions if you do on a lot of them. So it'd be safe to say that you can't equalize an AGM battery unless you want to take a chance. And so, uh, but you, but you can do that on flooded. So those are the disadvantages, but ultimately when you weigh all the pros and cons and you put them all in the equation right now in our marketplace, I would say 80% of owners are actually choosing AGM over flooded. And the main reason um, is that most boat owners end up not topping off their flooded batteries the way they should. And unless you're very, very diligent in your maintenance, uh, a flooded lead acid battery will never tolerate or understand that you have an excuse for not doing your chore, which is to make sure that the fluids are topped off. If you ever fail at that task, the battery will be permanently damaged in some function. And normally it's, it's, it's a function of how deep uh, the levels went down on the battery. So we recommend to owners to go AGM for maintenance reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I know when I had the, uh, and I'm, I have AGMs now on the boat and because I'm sort of stuck with what I can find in Europe and it's hard to, I would have chosen the, the Trojan T3s again, if I could have found them over there, but I can't. So I went with the AGMs. So I don't have as many amp hours as I did before. Uh, but it's AGM, and it's nice not having to get down there on my knees and top off the distilled water, you know, two or three, you know, usually a couple times a year when I'm sailing. And uh, and, and on the Trojans, I was amazed at how much water they would hold. You know, they would they put a lot of water on the on the Trojans, just so that uh, you have a little time, I think, so it can boil off before before it exposes the plates to, to air. And I guess it's once you expose, expose the plates to air, you're in trouble at that point in time. Is that right? Yeah. So there's really, that's going to cause, uh, yeah, once you expose the plates to air, and it's really not, I'm not saying you expose, you know, a millimeter or one sixteenth of an inch, it's the battery's finished. But the more you expose more plates to air, that surface area is going to be really hard to get re-energized on a charge. And what's what you generally see happen in the real world is that as the batteries are trying to recharge, the the batteries, because they're now more, they have a higher resistance, are going to heat up more under bulk charging. And that bulk charging is going to cause more boiling, more than usual. And so you're going to find yourself topping off the batteries more frequently. And again, so it just makes the battery more demanding over time. Um, and that capacity is pretty much effectively lost. You could equalize to try to rattle the plates and get the sulfation off the battery, but you'll never get it back. So I always tell owners, don't let it happen. And if you do, yeah, then you're just going to simply, it's going to become more troublesome to start maintaining those batteries because they're just going to become more demanding from that. So Jeff, are, you're a sailor yourself, I take it now. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I sail forty at least forty weekends a year. Really, where do I'm you keep, where do you keep your boat? 
I keep my boat on the Sunshine Coast, so that's a little bit north of Vancouver. Um, it's about maybe 45 nautical miles uh, if you sailed up there. Mm-hmm. So a good day in a sailboat. And the reason why we have it up there is because the moment we leave the marina, we're pretty much in God country. It's um, it The cruising grounds are epic um, on the Sunshine Coast. It's pretty much the start of the wilderness. And if you're into the wilderness, it uh, can be within an hour to three hours. It's extremely uh, gratifying. And you can have those lonely, uh, you know, solitude places if you don't go to where the maybe some of the other boaters would go. Go a little bit off the beaten track and you can be by yourself. So that's where we have our boat. Now, is it just, is it up at Pender, is it Pender Harbor, Pender Bay? Is that where you keep it or is it south yeah, of there? So, yeah, so it's in a place called Secret Cove. Um just north uh, of a, a really famous anchorage called Smuggler's Cove mm-hmm. and, and Thormanby. So Thormanby and Smuggler's would be probably the first anchorages on the Sunshine Coast that you can realistically go to that are the bigger ones. And then from there, just 10 miles, about seven or eight nautical miles north of there is a, is Pender Harbor. Um, so we're very close to Pender Harbor, just slightly south of it. Okay, okay. I, I once drove up to, I think, where the Highway 1 ends is Lund. Is that right? Yeah, that's actually the end of, uh, actually, it's even more, it's actually kind of cooler. It's the end of, I think it's Highway 66. It's the Pan-American Highway. Right, that's the northernmost all, end. That's right. Yeah, it goes all the way down to somewhere in Chile or something like that. It's Yeah, it's basically the end of the Pan-American Highway. <laughs> So it's got a little claim to fame there. That's across from Savory. Okay. There's a little harbor there, as I recall. Actually, I know there is because I, I changed crews there one time. So they yeah. drove up there. We'd switch cars, and somebody drove back, and somebody took the boat continuing on from there. So, Yeah, it's beautiful Anchorage, and there's a great bakery there, Nancy's Bakery, uh, to die for, really. So you'll go out, do you go out for long cruises or short cruises, or what are your, what's your typical – or do you take a week or two or three at a time and go out and go sailing? So before I started my business, I used to have time. So um, long standard, right? There's no such thing as, you know, I don't have a boss, but I, <laughs> I don't have time anymore. Uh, so the longest cruise we've ever done was nine and a half weeks on the outside of Vancouver Island. And that was prior to starting our business. Um, and we did nine. We did a week on the inside of Vancouver Island um, and we did eight and a half weeks on the outside. So uh, that was kind of the genesis of actually starting our business. So we had the idea of starting our business at the end of that cruise. Um, and that was incredible. It was it was very, very magical, especially Barkley Sound. Uh, and three weeks in Barkley Sound. Um and uh it was yeah, it's 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 really anybody that likes remoteness, it's it's up there probably with the most beautiful remote places you could ever imagine. Uh, so that's a that's kind of the upper end of the spectrum. And then in the summer, we generally take long weekends every weekend. So we'll take three, four days. Um, in the summer, last summer, we had our boat in Powell River, uh, which is at the, not Desolation Sound, but pretty close to Desolation Sound. Uh, it's just a little bit south of Lund. So maybe 30 minutes by car, 45 minutes by car. And so we would drive up 
and uh, stay in Desolation Sound for three, four days a week. Um, and then I'd come back, work in the city for three, four days, and then go back for three days. And so we did that pretty much every weekend in the summer. And uh, some, sometimes we take years ago, uh, we would take, we did a three week vacation to the Broughtons, which are the archipelago north on the north side of Vancouver Island. Um, so we did that. And most of the time now, realistically, I get a week. The longest vacation I can take now is a week. And we'll spend it. This summer we had one week vacation and we spent it in Desolation Sound. Yeah. Now, I assume you've been up to Nelson Island and you probably stayed at Ballet Bay. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, Ballet Bay. Um, I was there one year when the Stanley Park, uh, there was the, the biggest windstorm in 500 years that blew down a huge proportion of the trees in Stanley Park. We were actually in Ballet Bay that weekend. It was blowing uh, 60, sustained 55, gusting to 65 knot winds in that bay. Wow. Yeah, that's, there's was, not a lot, not a lot of room in that bay either. No, luckily we were the only boat. We had double anchor, uh, offset by about 30 degrees on maybe 30 feet of water, and then we were 30 feet of chain, 150 feet of rope on both uh, roads, and uh, the boat was was literally water skiing at anchorage. It was going from side to side. There was two. It was a, over a foot and a half of chop with maybe 300 feet of fetch. Yeah, I know. There's no fetch there. You're well protected, but wow. No, and the trees are high. I mean, that's, you've got to imagine, the trees are at least 200 feet, at least at the shoreline. So how the wind drops down and actually can make that fetch in so little time is, it was, it was, well, all the ferry services were canceled. I mean, it was, it was an epic storm. So we, that's the last time actually I was in Ballet Bay was the, was in 07 when that storm, 06 actually, November 06, that's when that happened, yeah. Let me ask you a question, because you're bringing back memories of mine, and so we, that was always one of my favorite anchorages was Ballet Bay, and there used to be a, a big, well, almost what they called a white fleet that uh, that that had a, a dock there, so a big major mega yacht that had a dock up there. Is that dock still there? It, it was, there was a boat called the Marco Polo, as I recalled, and I, I don't, uh, because I haven't been there in a long time. Uh, well, it I was there long before you were. So. Yeah, it wasn't there in 06. Okay. How about that? All it right. wasn't in 06. No, yeah. there's some nice homes. There's some older homes and there's some amazing homes in that bay. So yeah. we were in the bay and, and I, I'll just tell a quick story because this it brings back some good stories to me. My daughters were, oh, young. They were, I think, maybe eight, nine, ten years old, and we took the dinghy to shore, and, and even though it says no trespass, and we started walking you know, on, the, on the paths that go outside of the bay, and we walked over to Blind Bay, and uh, do, have you ever walked over there? No, but I've done uh, with our tender, we've, yeah, that bay is, I mean, it's, it's massive. Yeah. We've done, we've done, we've, we've actually, with the tender, actually kind of putt-putted around it, but it takes hours. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. So we walked over to Blind Bay, and and then we walked back. And as we were walking back, my daughters started. I have twin daughters, and they started whispering to each other, and then started running and ran back to the dinghy, jumped in the dinghy, untied us from the shore, and and rode back out to the boat and left mom and dad on shore. 
and, and we had to yell at him. And there were a lot of boats in the bay at the time, and so we had to punish him with everybody in the bay just laughing at, uh, <laughs> at what they did. But the, the, at least fortunately, they put on their life jackets when they got in the dinghy. That was our big concern. But, but uh, later on that night, I walked over to this house on Blind Bay, and I set up my camera, and there's two pictures in my office actually right now I'm looking at. And I set up my camera very carefully because it was a classic, oh, just an old house. It was obviously a home-built house over there. And I was setting up my tripod, and this is back in the time of film. And I was getting a long exposure, and, and I turned, and my camera fell over into the water. And I said, oh, no, and this is a, a Canon uh, single-lens reflex camera. And the guy that lived in the house walked out, and he said, oh, what can I do? And I said, well, can you let me, do you have some fresh water I can rinse out the camera with? And I did. So I rinsed out the camera and put it in the oven and, and dried it out, and it actually worked again after that. But I got to know the guy that owned this house. He was a hermit that moved up there years and years and years ago. And he built this house, and he had a little dinghy. And he kept his dinghy over in Ballet Bay. But he, his house was over on Blind Bay. And every year I'd go back there when I was sailing in that area. He would see my boat and he would come out and he'd come aboard and would have long discussions. He was a pretty lonely man. His, his name was Ralph. And he was just a, pretty much a hermit that lived up there. And I always wonder, he was old at the time, so I'm, I'm wondering if he's even still around anymore. This is, I sailed across the Atlantic in 97, so this would have been 95, 96 90, you know, 94, 95, 96, so this is quite a while ago. But I just have wonderful memories of that whole area up there. I, I know the house you're talking about. You do? It looks, yeah, I know exactly. You can't miss, you can't, it, it looks like a hermit's house. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. Yeah, it, it conjures kind of the, you know, man versus nature all by themselves. You know, it makes you think about maybe 100 years ago when, uh, people were actually uh, out here trying to make ends meet it's it's uh yeah it it's it's different compared to the luxury that you see on ballet bay mm -hmm. and some of those houses that are palatial um it's yeah it's a stark contrast all right so i'm looking at your website when i built my boat i pretty much did all the wiring myself and read a lot of articles and stuff but that was so long ago what what tricks would a DIY person want to? What what sort of material would you need to learn to wire up your boat nowadays with all that's going with all the new technology that's out? You know, the first thing I tell is, and I see this. I you know we're lucky. We we get to we work on maybe four to five hundred boats a year. So I get to meet a whole cross section of owners, and you know most owners end up doing some of the work themselves right? Uh, very few don't. So I, I get most owners are, you know, at, to some extent, a do-it-yourself crowd at, at, at some level. And what I've seen out there, and I, I see, first of all, the first thing I always tell owners, it really doesn't matter what your technical aptitude is in terms of your schooling or what you did for a living. What it comes down to, where I see success uh, in terms of someone that wants to do a do-it-yourself project, is to a uh, educate oneself and and not be arrogant that they know more or they're better than everyone else. Um, 
So I've I've seen I'm an engineer myself, and I've seen engineers that wire his boat that probably didn't read a book. They think they learn everything, they know too much, they're smarter than the rest, and they just do it their own way, and it's a complete catastrophe. And then I see other owners who are accountants, no technical background whatsoever, and the way that they wired their boat and the way they did them or did it is absolutely unbelievable. And I've even extended to a few of them and said, listen, if you're ever interested in looking at doing some of this hands-on work, I'd, I'd have you on board our team. And so it really isn't about what you learn in school or, or what you feel you can do. It's about always questioning yourself and having this thirst for educating and learning and making sure that you do something properly as opposed to just fly by night. So that's kind of when I do presentations on for do-it-yourselfs, uh, do-it-yourselfers, I always emphasize educate yourself and always question yourself. Because with electrical, being 98% or 95% right is not good enough. There is no, it's one of those fields where you need to be 100%. And if you're not and you forgot a fuse or you didn't fuse properly, you could literally have your boat catch on fire. So the constant consequences are deadly it's like playing with your brakes on your car you got to know what you're doing you just can't say well I, I i'm pretty sure i got it and so that's the first thing and then if you're once you kind of acknowledge that and you that you know you just want to learn then and um one reader one book that i you know that's really amazing is obviously probably your readers if they haven't heard of him is nigel calder I mean, he's, a, you know, a, practically a god or demigod in terms of electrical and mechanical systems. Uh, he's got a new book. I think his fourth ed edition just came out. So I would encourage readers to read his book. There's Don Casey, um, has a kind of a more uh, introductory primer. Uh, Ed Wong, uh, he does another one. Um, and then there's blogs. Uh, there's a really famous uh, sailor from the East Coast called Main Sail. Um, uh, his name is Rod Collins and he has, uh, his own blog. Uh, he does incredible write-ups. Um, so he's really useful and it's all about educating yourself, you know, and it's before you do something, you're probably going to end up spending way more time reading and figuring and thinking about it than actually doing it. But in the end, what you do is actually going to be right. And you're not going to have to undo it or redo it later on. So, um, that would be my advice to anybody that wants to tackle electrical problem or system on their boat is to really really do your homework before you actually get started have you found a foolproof method of terminating ends to, to stop corrosion what's your what what techniques do you use because that's where i've found on my boat when i have an electrical problem 90 at least 95 percent of the time it's at the terminal end uh, yeah that's true yeah that 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 yeah you're absolutely that's because that's where you're actually doing something, right? That's that's where you're actually making a difference. That's your work, and that's normally going to be terminations are. Uh, if something is done right, the termination is the next likely culprit. So the way you would do that is, first thing is what I always emphasize as much as possible, is if you're going to pull a new wire, make sure it's tin wire. Mm -hmm. Um you, on older boats, you're going to find a lot of the wiring is untinned. Yep, that's my just boat. Simply... I had a lot of untinned wire in my yeah. boat, yeah. So, And that's fine. The builders back in the day just did things untinned, and they were doing that for cost. Um, and they probably didn't really know either 
or if they did, they kind of looked the other way. But the reality is a lot of boats have untinned wire. Now, what I always emphasize to owners, I'm like, okay, that's one shortcut. You know, they, at the end of the day, no new boat would be built with untinned wire. You wouldn't accept it. So if you have that, then you've got to really try to do what you were talking about is mitigate corrosion. And the way to do that would be on the smaller gauge wires is to buy uh, basically connectors that are heat shrink connectors. Mm -hmm. uh, and once you once you cut the insulation of the jacket and you, you've got to make sure that obviously the wires themselves are untarnished, right? They can't be black. It's got to look beautiful bare copper. Once you have that, then you would use a special type of crimp crimper uh, that is made for insulated uh, connectors, specifically heat shrink uh, terminals. And uh, so it's a it's a crimper that's not going to pierce the insulation or the heat shrink insulation on that connector or terminal. Mm -hmm. um, and it's ratchet, so it does a crimp the right crimp every time. They're around fifty dollars. Okay. And then once you've crimped it then you would apply with uh, a heat gun or a butane torch. But the butane torch takes a little bit more skill to make sure you don't actually burn the jacket or the insulation. Um, and then you would make sure that it closes down properly, you know, all around. And if you do that, you're honestly, it's, it's 20, 30, 40, it's endless. But most owners... What we've seen is a lot of people buy the the heat shrink uh, connectors or terminals, and they actually don't actually apply the heat to actually make them be completely sealed. So buying a heat shrink terminal doesn't actually make it uh, doesn't give you that protection unless you actually uh, apply heat to it to seal it down onto the uh, jacket of the wire. And there's uh, you got to always do a pull test, of course, right? Don't be shy, like you, especially if it's a gauge 10 or 12 wire, yank really hard uh, to make sure that before you apply the heat shrink uh, or the heat on the on the jacket that it's a really good crimp. And if you do that, you're you should never have a problem. You, that that connection is going to be rock solid for for literally decades to come, even in a in a region that has high salinity in the water. Back when I built my boat, heat shrink terminals, I, they might have existed, but they were fairly hard to find. So they were just regular terminals. So you always had the one end that would always expose the wire. So it's, it's, it's something I would do now, but at the time I didn't have that really that, that option. So let me talk to you about charging batteries. I see on your, on your website that you talk about um, uh, externally regulated alternators or, or generators. What what would be the and I have a Yanmar three GM thirty engine which has a standard alternator that came with it. This is a pretty good alternator, but if you wanted to up step up that um, to a higher amperage alternator, how would you go about doing that? Yeah, so that's a one of our most common projects that we do here. Uh, the reason is, as a sailor, you want to minimize the amount of time that you have to run your your engine to recharge your batteries. And a way to do that is to increase the effective output of your alternator. So um, you would simply want to have, assuming your batteries are big enough to take the current, right? And most right now the problem is generally not the batteries. The batteries can take more current than the alternators are generating. 
assuming the batteries can take it. And generally, you can assume you can do that by uh, it, the, the calculation is about for flooded batteries would be theoretically about 25% of capacity uh, and AGM uh, 40% or higher depending on it. But like you could safely assume 15%, 20% for flooded, 25, 35% for AGM. So if you, for example, have a 400 amp hour battery bank and it's flooded, you can easily do 80 amps or theoretically probably up to 100 amps in terms of a charging current that the batteries are going to be able to take. So now that you've figured uh, what your batteries can take in terms of a charging current, the next thing you do is you say, well, how am I going to increase my alternator output? The first thing you could do is uh, increase the size of the alternator. And uh, right now there's alternators that are a small case that go up to about 160, 65 amps. And they're quite common. The problem with those alternators is they need to be driven by either dual V-belts or serpentine pulleys. Um, so you've got to have an engine that can accommodate either dual V-belts or what's really popular now is um, companies have been uh, creating pulley kits to actually retrofit even an engine like yours and put what's called a serpentine pulley kit on that. And a serpentine pulley kit has the ability of driving uh, higher output alternators. All right, so so that's the first thing, but you also also want to always make sure that your engine manufacturer is okay with that. Um, and and you can't load up a single V-belt with generally the maximum recommended on average is about 90 amps. So if you have a single V-belt, um, the largest alternator in terms of the effective power that you're going to drive that alternator should not be more than 90. That's not to say the alternator can't be bigger. You can have a bigger alternator, but if you're going to have it driven by an external regulator, you've got to make sure that it's not the field voltage would never drive it harder than about 90 amps. And I'll talk about that a little bit in a little bit. So you first choose, you make sure your battery can take the current you want to send in. You make sure that you're what kind of uh, belt system your engine is or can be. And then you choose your alternator, depending on your budget and depending on what amps you want from anywhere from probably the low end would be 90 amps on a sailboat. You can, a stock alternator can be 55, but you can go easily up to 90 and then from 90 to 160. And then, and then the question is, do you have it internal regulated, which is what all engine manufacturers are going to give you is going to be an internal regulated alternator. Now, when you say internal, is a is a regulation inside the alternator itself? Then, well, it's a, it's it's in the it's at the back of the alternator. Okay, right. Okay. But it, but it's basically part and parcel of the alternator. There's no there's no wires that leads anywhere else to a brain. Like the it's a very simple system. And and the other thing you got to remember is that an alternator. When you consider an alternator, they're compared into what's called their cold rating. That means that it's the alternator output the moment it actually starts outputting, not after it gets hot, which happens within about, let's say, 30 minutes. So once an alternator gets hot, if you had a 100-amp alternator, that alternator is not going to be outputting the same the first minute as it is the, la the next in an hour from now. In an hour, it's going to be outputting probably 10 to 15% less. So that's the one thing that you always have to consider is that once the alternator outputs is warm or it's been running for a while, the output is going to lower. So 
Then what you do is you decide, okay, so I've figured out my alternator, figure out what type of drive system I'm going to do, what batteries, what can they take? And then the recommendation that we do with a lot of owners, we say, if you really want to drive that alternator as efficiently as possible, i.e. take every single amp that that alternator can give you. So let's say you bought a 100 amp alternator and now it's hot and it's giving 85. If you had an internal regulated alternator, you're probably looking at about realistically, probably maybe 70% of that number is really the maximum output you'll ever get. So if you had a 100 amp alternator, after it's running for a while, you're probably going to get around 60 to 70 amps max out of that alternator. Max. And it's going to start dwindling down eventually. The, the other way of doing it, and Balmar has this Electromax, Xantrax, Ample Power, they all do these devices that are called external regulator. And basically what it does is it provides a three-phase smart charging system to your alternator. So your alternator is going to go through bulk absorption phase or float uh, in terms of its charging profile on the alternator. And then that's where you can set the alternator to be for AGM, for gel, for you could even do lithium, you can do different gel profiles, different AGM profiles, you can do custom profiles. It's pretty much anything you want. It's a computer. And then the great thing about that is it's also got a temperature sensor for the battery so it can do temperature compensated uh, charging voltages. So as the temperature battery rises, the voltage is inversely proportional so it actually lowers. Or if the battery temperature is cold, then the voltage uh, actually uh, is higher. It has a temperature sensor on the alternator. So if the, the alternator overheats or gets too hot, it's going to reduce output. So it's got a few uh, built-in uh, safeties. And the other big advantage is, is it actually measures voltage not at the alternator output out post, but actually at the battery. And so what it does is it actually compensates for line loss from the alternator, which is very significant. You can have line loss on an alternator output of 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3 volts easily or even higher um, as, as the voltage or the current goes through that wire all the way back to the batteries. If you've got voltage sensing happening at the battery, the alternator output is actually simply gonna compensate with, and it's simply instead of outputting, let's say 14.4, it's gonna output 14.7 and what the batteries are going to see is 14.4. I so, see, I see. Now, yeah. so how big is the action? So this is a separate box that you're basically, yeah. so you're going to run some wires from the alternator to this box and then the box to the batteries or, or the battery switch, I guess, is what you're looking at. Is that right? Yeah. So the box is about, uh, they're pretty much all the same size nowadays. They're maybe 10 centimeters long, 4 centimeters, 5 centimeters wide by maybe 4 centimeters high. So that's, you know, for four or five inches by two inches by two inches. So, so pretty it's not small a, then, okay. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's pretty small. So you're going to have, um, the, the, the external regulator comes with a wiring harness. The wiring harness is going to be made of four wires. It's going to have, uh, one of the wires is going to be power. Uh, another one of the wires is going to be ignition power, so I, when it should turn itself on. Uh, another wire is going to be uh, an optical sensor. So for tacks that are driven off of the alternator, it can actually sense the rotation of the alternator and make sure that a 
that the alternators never completely shut off in case your tachometer is actually tapped out of the alternator. And then the last thing, the, the thing that actually drives the alternator is the field voltage. And that's a blue wire. And that's what actually is basically like uh, your pedal within a, a car. You know, you, 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 it's going to vary in voltage between, it can go up to, let's say, 12 volts. And it's going to basically vary. And depending on the voltage you apply um, on that field voltage, uh, your regulator is going to be changing its output. And then the alternator output itself goes directly or should go directly to your house battery or whatever battery you want. And then you're going to have a voltage sense wire that's going to go all the way back to the battery that you're recharging. And then you'll have temperature sensor wires, one going to the alternator, then one going to the house battery. So, you know, it's, 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 it's not going to be hooked up in an hour or two. It's going to take you probably a day to do all that, you know, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, you know, maybe 10 hours, 11 hours, eight hours, depending on how things go. By the time you get the alternator off the boat, you've got to get it modified for external fields. So you're going to have to get an alternator shop to do that. So it's going to take you a little bit of time, but the benefits um, are certainly there in terms of maximizing your charge output from your alternator um, can be really high. Okay. Now, you're talking of amps of output for the alternator, but isn't, isn't the charge of the battery limited by the ability of the battery to absorb the charge? So doesn't that slow down the number of amps that actually recharge the battery? Yeah, and that's, that, you're absolutely right. That, and that's what I was alluding to at the beginning. It really depends on uh, the size of your battery bank. So, for example, if you have a flooded battery bank and you had four golf cart AGMs, you're looking at, let's say, let's say they're four golf cart AGMs, you're looking at about 400 amp hours. Let's just for even numbers, it could be 380, but in a 12 volt system, let's say 400, that battery bank can take, and if it's a standard AGM bank and it's not a thin plate pure lead or a Firefly uh, type of AGM, um, you're looking at probably, let's say 40% of the battery capacity as a maximum charge rate. So 40% of 400, is uh, 160 maybe if I'm doing the math right. And so you, that battery can take up to 160 amps during bulk charging. So okay. the, the theory there is what you're supposed to do as a cruiser is you're supposed to always be charging your batteries between uh, within bulk range. You shouldn't be charging in absorption because it's just too time consuming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you get you... You're, you're, you reach a point of diminishing returns. Very, that's know, right. right. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So what you do as a boat owner is you stay in a place where you're within the bulk range. And the bulk range on a flooded battery is going to be, let's say, between 50 and 80%. And you could be 85, if, but let's maybe a little bit optimistic. And so you oscillate between 50 and 80%. And so with your battery monitor, you would start around 50% of capacity. And, and once you're batteries start kind of having been getting to the absorption phase, um, that's where then the current is going to be limited. And as you get higher and higher in percentage, the batteries is not going to be able to take the same amount of current. And so then that's going to start, the battery is actually going to be kind of a limiting factor. But what you want to do is you want to be within 50 and 80 at bulk at maximum amount of current that your batteries can take within reason, maybe not totally 
at the max, but near, right? So you could easily, in a 400 amp hour battery bank is not a large battery bank nowadays. Uh, so a lot of owners are gonna find themselves with six golf carts, eight golf carts, you know, and some people, you know, even go further. So most of the owners out there nowadays, the biggest problem isn't so much the rate limiting of the battery, is the fact that their alternator is too small in a function of their battery size. I see, I see. Yeah. Now, are they getting better and better, more efficient batteries? I mean, I know the, my big complaint is I only have so much room for my batteries, and it doesn't seem like the amp hours are increasing that much. Is there much hope for for packing more power into smaller packages, or what are you seeing along those in, in the technology there? Yeah, well, it, it, it has happened. Um, the There's a battery out that it now exists um, that the depth of discharge is 20%. So you're not buying more. The battery, whatever it is, a golf cart is always going to be right now 200 amp hours. But the big advantage is with a flooded battery, you've got to start, you've got to stop depleting it at 50, which would be 100 amp hours to let's say 80%, which would be 160. So you're oscillating on a pair of golf carts between 100 amp hours and 160. So that's effectively only 60 amp hours of usable battery power. With these new batteries, these uh, foam, uh, the Firefly batteries, you're basically able to go down to 20%. So now you're able to go down all the way to 40 on a golf cart, let's say, and go all the way to 160. So now you're using 110 over 60. So for that exact same battery, you're almost doubling your battery capacity. Right? And so... That is, and it's the same weight um, as your other battery. It looks the same. The difference is that battery can actually go to a deeper uh, depth of discharge. Now, it doesn't. The benefit doesn't stop there. And eventually, um, and Nigel and a lot of people are very excited about these batteries. We've started uh, installing them on boats. The greatest thing about these batteries is that they never sulfate in partial uh, state of discharge. So they can stay in pretty much infinity between 20 and 80%. And if you forever, whatever reason, eventually get yourself to a dock and you charge it back to 100, it's actually going to go back to 100%. So these are long life batteries then. I mean, these these don't wear out. Is that what you're saying? Well, the, the biggest problem with AGM nowadays um, is that if you leave an AGM battery in a partial state of discharge for an extended period of time, that portion of the battery that has been was never topped off in a month or two months is going to be really hard to get back once you get you get back yourself back to a charger and you you believe that you charge it back to 100%, but you didn't get 100%. You might only have gotten back to 95%. And that top 5% is gone forever. And next time you do that, you're going to get only 95% of 95%. And so that's how AGM batteries do. It's from not being fully recharged uh, often enough. And so the these new batteries um, allow you to actually stay in a partial state of charge forever without losing capacity. All right, so I, I, I go sailing for two months on my boat. When I put my boat up, I top off the batteries as much as I can with the battery charger, and then I totally disconnect my batteries. 
I take the terminals off the batteries. Is that the best way to store a battery or not? Yeah, so that would be something separate. So the it depends. First of all, a flood of you're lucky you've got AGMs now. Right. Mm -hmm. AGM batteries uh, only self discharge by per, about a percent a month. Okay. A flooded battery discharges even if it's disconnected by probably half a percent a day. Oh. Okay. So, so if you've got a flooded battery, um, you should never leave it even disconnected off a charger forever. And that's why people like, uh, you know, I have folks that live in Florida and in Florida they have a car and even though they're not there in the summer, somebody drives the car once a month in the parking lot for half an hour to keep the battery charged so that when they show up there in November, the battery starts. Even though the battery is disconnected, the battery actually uh, has self-discharges. And that's something inherently more serious in a flooded battery than an AGM battery. What I'm talking about is a little bit different in that when you're actually using your battery, if you're actually not connected to shore power, and depending on your solar system, it might be very hard for you to get back to 100% while you're cruising uh, for your batteries. It's It can be very time-consuming to do that. And with AGM batteries, if you don't get back to 100% regularly, the battery capacity will diminish over time because you're not bringing it back to 100%. That's one of the drawbacks of AGM. With these new AGM uh, Firefly batteries, the batteries will never, uh, the testing so far has proven that they will never suffer from being in a partial state of discharge for extended periods of time. So Firefly, is it, uh, I'm looking at your website, are, is it just a specific brand name, Firefly Oasis batteries? Is that what they That's are right. called? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're, um, they were, it's just came out on the market about a year ago. Um, the only downside, well, there's actually two downsides with those batteries. A would be the sticker price or they're, they're quite expensive. They're double the price of an AGM battery. So quadruple the price of a flooded battery. Um, and the other disadvantage is they only currently come in group 31 sizes. Okay. Now what's, how, how big is a group 31 size in? Um, it's a it's similar to a golf cart, potentially a little bit longer, a little bit narrower and a little higher, but I don't quote me on that. It's, it's about around 90 amp hours, hundred amp hours at 12, amp, uh, 12 volts. So it's not, the capacity is very similar to a golf cart. Um, but it's slightly different dimensions than a golf cart battery. It's similar, but different. Well, I've been looking at your website. You've got a lot of information, just a lot of articles, a lot of information. How do you make your money then? Well, you know, um, we do, our business model is service-based model. So um, I've always uh, kind of, the approach I've taken from the outset is that with electrical and electronics, um, as a bone owner, it's way better to deal with a specialist than it is to deal with a journalist. And as boats get more and more complicated, I think it's harder for a journalist to be great at everything. They can maybe be good if they're an incredible individual at everything, but to be truly great at everything is gonna be for very few people. And so our model, instead of trying to find people that are walk on water on all fronts, 
what we try to do is we try to find people that are passionate about electrical and electronics. And so, you know, you choose one activity and you do it over and over and over again. And through that activity being repetitive, you get, you become an expert. So the model that we do is we try to, through showing our subject matter expertise on our website, which is really what that comes down to, is we're trying to demonstrate to boat owners that for the price of a generalist, you can deal with a specialist. Um, so we're not going to take care of everything on your boat. We're not going to run do engine. We're not going to be doing the fabric, the canvas, the sails, the fiberglass, the plumbing. All those things are things that, yeah, we know stuff about because we're boat owners, but we're not experts at. And the, the, the reason why we have so much content on there is really because, A, we answer the specialist questions from owners that we get. People ask us these weird questions all the time that are kind of maybe nobody's been able to answer before. Um, and we're trying to showcase the depth of knowledge that we have in one specific field. And then owners in the end, a lot of them might do it themselves, but they're figuring, you know what? Uh, maybe I'll bring the, those guys in and they'll help me out and then maybe set the stage for me. Maybe they'll do it all or maybe they're going to help me up at the outset and then I'll follow through. So we're just kind of trying to demonstrate to people that we're not um, – that our level of knowledge is deep within electrical or electronics. And so we're a service-based company and, and our revenue really comes from not selling products but actually uh, doing installations um, from design, installation, commissioning, and then educating the owners on how all this works. Do you have a specific geographic area you tend to work within, or do you travel all over? Yeah, so we've, as as we're, you know, our reputation uh, or our dedication to the field increases, we've been fortunate. Uh, we've worked in Mexico. We did a, a rewiring on a big 75-footer that had sunk at the dock there. There was a North Haven. Um, that sank at the dock that our owner bought knowing that and we rewired the whole boat from top to bottom um, So that was a massive undertaking that we did in Mexico. We've done work in the Caribbean um, we've done work in uh, Different provinces in Canada in Canada being flown in for galvanic surveys and whatnot and then uh, most of the work we do is in British Columbia for either Canadian or American uh, owners that have boats either here or bring their boats here during the cruising season. Uh, so, and then in Vancouver would be the big area, but we also do Vancouver. I have a technician on the island and then a technician on the Sunshine Coast. So it's pretty much the big cruising grounds of uh, this area that we target. All right, so I'm going to ask you one more question because this is I'm, I'm selfish and I want, to, I want to pick your brain while I've got you on, on online here. What's the best way to put up a boat for the winter from a battery perspective? Because that's been one of my big expenses. My batteries don't seem to last like I would expect them to. What's the best way to preserve battery life? And if it were you, would you go with the new Firefly Oasis batteries? All right. So um, the two-part question, for owners that already have batteries on board, I would suggest that you want to do what you, you had mentioned. You want to disconnect all the loads from those batteries, assuming you can do that, right? You're not concerned about, uh, you know, flooding your boat on the hard, which can happen in heavy rains. 
So assuming that you've taken care of your boat is you're not you don't have to run any loads on your boat. Um, you want to disconnect loads because if you're not going to be recharging them uh, while you're away, you definitely don't want any loads. The next thing you probably want to do is you don't want to have it in too cold of an environment. So some owners are going to take the batteries off the boat and keep it in a place a little bit warmer. It's not good to have a battery that's cold and discharged. So that would make matters worse. If you can, ideally, you would want to have a smart battery charger or battery conditioner or small little smart charger that would keep your batteries on a float stage. That would be the ideal situation. If you can have shore power to recharge the batteries, that'd be good. And if you can't, one thing that's actually uh, gaining a lot of popularity is solar panels mm -hmm. with an internal regulator, really straightforward, that you would put on the deck, glue on the deck, latch on the deck, that would go to your batteries. And the sole purpose of that conditioner was just to keep, to offset the, uh, the self-discharge of your batteries. That would be a really good way to not be connected to shore power, not have to worry about, you know, the implications of that, and yet get the benefits of having a little bit of charge going back into the batteries every day uh, through a reg like you obviously need a controller, uh, but some of those panels actually come with built-in controllers now, and so that would be a really good way. Now, your second part of your question was, would I do Firefly today if I was doing my batteries? If I was a boater that was actually going offshore and I did not have the ability or did not want to pay the cost of connecting myself to shore power because A, it was not readily available or it would be too expensive to do so, I would very much consider a Firefly battery. The number of cycles that you get is much higher than normal batteries, i.e. the battery life is inherently already better. And the fact that you can actually never care about staying in the bulk and never worry about having to go to 100% is really going to make your batteries last much longer in real-world real world applications. So, um, yes, I do think that the Firefly price point is worth the benefits that you – or the cost versus the benefit. The only downside is they only come in Group 31s. So mm – -hmm. Depending on your battery configuration, you might not be able to do Group 30 once. You might, but you might not. And so that would be the only thing that would stop me from doing that. All right, Jeff, thanks so much for, for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. So let's, uh, if, if you have any future ideas to talk about, get a hold of me again and we'll do another podcast, okay? All right, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, enjoy the sailing out there. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you would like to support the podcast, do me a favor and go into the iTunes directory and write a review. Tell your family and friends about it. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, drop me a note. I've got a few suggestions from listeners, and I'm following up on those, and we'll be hearing from some of those people they recommended in the next, oh, probably month or so. So if you have some suggestions, write me an email, franz at medsailor.com, or use a contact form at the website. Get out there and go sailing. I cannot teach you how to sail with my audio courses. You're going to have to get out there and get on the water to really learn how to sail. Thanks for listening. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford.
Princeton can use a guy like Joe? What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs>